Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. June in the garden. So, Chris, how are you? I'm very well. I'm a bit chilly today, to be honest with you. Very unseasonal for the, for the time of the year, I have to say. It is. Uh, it keeps on coming out with nice sunshine and then disappearing and going into a cold patch again, doesn't it? It's Indeed, yeah. Very cool start to this year. It is, but us gardeners are as resilient as usual, so we just uh, we muck in and carry on, don't we? Definitely. And in the news this week, government has announced that peat is to be banned from 2025? That's right, yeah. And um, the Garden Centre Trade basically missed a major deadline back in... 20, uh, well, it was introduced back in 2011 that by 2020, garden centres were going to be not basically selling peat. Of course, that came and went. And uh, the government have now sort of stepped in. Lots of, obviously... Um, pressure from the environmental lobbies as we can imagine to obviously reduce the amount of peat we're using so yes all, all changed by 2025 and maybe a few years later for the for the gardening trade as well yeah because professional horticulture's 2028 mm-hmm. and uh, obviously uh, us amateurs uh, yeah 2025 but yeah. yeah like you say sort of um 2011 we were trying mm. to sort of start the ball rolling and it Indeed. does seem that the industry has been a little bit slow to really get on board with this and change things because i've always had the feeling that gardeners are people who on the whole want to preserve the environment and make the environment a better place for us and uh, we're not generally sort of painted as environmental destroyers and things like that but in some respects we are or we have been um, Mm. with the with the peat bogs and yeah it, it would be nice to think that if now the government have properly set a rather tight deadline, some might argue, that they re- will really now push forwards with getting us a better alternative to the peat compost that we're used to. Because sort of stripping it back a bit more, Chris, um, compost, what is a definition of compost? Well, basically, it's composted, um, broken down organic matter. Okay, so... Uh, just thinking, sort of, you and I make, uh, we've got our compost heaps mm-hmm. in, in the garden where we chuck all our old lawn cuttings and mm-hmm. weeds yeah. <laughs> and leaf sweepings mm-hmm. and all, all the organic material that we're not using. And I, mean, I know my vegetable patch gets all the things like the offcuts from the cauliflower and, uh, sure. and the yeah. bit, bits of vegetables that you don't use when and, you're. And don't forget the vacuum contents as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So can, those are good there. Yeah. yeah, the dust and yeah. the cobwebs. Why not no, chuck, uh, chuck yeah. that on there as well? And um, used to throw the wood ash on from that, which obviously helps build the potash mm-hmm. levels in your compost up. But yep. I think, yep. uh, just as a word of caution, you shouldn't do that with coal. Oh no, no, definitely no. That's, that's quite uh, po- that's toxic to, yeah, to yeah, your the coal soul. dust yeah. or yeah. Coal, coal ash Ashes. is no good, but no, wood no. ash is, is very uh, very good for your compost heap. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, obviously the commercial compost that you and I are buying as um, bags of compost in the garden centre that's um, predominantly or historically predominantly has been made up of sort of mostly peas yeah and then they add the nutrients as in nitrogen potassium and phosphorus as um, fertilizers and then the trace elements and hey presto you've got a bag of compost Mm. And I suppose the reason we we like have liked peat so, and we've had this obviously uh, this relationship with it is that it's a very sterile, clean material to use, and it's usually pest and disease free, and 
obviously, because of that, you know exactly what you're getting from your bag of compost. And therein lies the problem we're going to be faced if we're going to be using a lot of these materials, which are um, obviously peat reduced. Obviously, that's happening at the moment. But in the long term, we'll have completely peat free compost, which will be relying solely on these this green waste. A lot of it will have come from your, your brown bins. And uh, to me, there's a bit of a concern there because of consistency of what you're actually getting in your material. Well, and if you've got gardeners been using pesticides or mm. uh, sort of treatments that you yeah. possibly don't want. And, and, and also the processes of, 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 of actually producing the compost that have to go to very high temperatures to kill off obviously the likes of wheat seeds. But again, anecdotally, I remember reading not that many months ago about a, a batch of compost which went into a garden centre and all the, um, the, the, the bales of compost were uh, basically infected with seeds. So mm. they got massive amounts of not only grass seed but weed seeds, which of course is frustrating. I mean, it's you know you're using compost to grow plants you want. You're not using compost for plants you don't want. So Chris, that's a great relief to hear because sometimes I grow plants and <laughs> put my seeds in, it and I'm sure I look after them well, and I get these weeds growing. And honestly, yep. I, I I do feel that sometimes they have come from the compost, Indeed. and you think, well. That should be a sterile growing media, and it's not, is it? Yeah, indeed. I mean, years ago, when I, I, I was in commercial horticulture, we used a sterilised soil, uh, loam, okay. and that process went to very high temperatures. So it basically pasteurised the compost r- rather than sterilised. If you sterilise something, you, it's completely devoid of life. So you have to go to that temperature just below yep. so you keep the um, integrity of the, the soil, the living organisms, alive. Um, and I think, is that going to really work with a lot of the materials we're doing? You know, that's why we need these next few years for the developers to you know, work on the compost mixes and get them right for us gardeners. Because ultimately, the commercial um, brigade are going to want something equally as good, if not better, to grow the plants which we want to buy from our garden centres and nurseries. Well, that's it. And I suppose the other thing to consider with this is that obviously those waste streams like the brown bin, the coconut fibre um, from the coconut husks uh, mm-hmm. at the moment it's being used for other other resources I mean coconut fibre a lot of it's turned into like mats that you see on people's doorsteps yep. and brushes and charcoal so yep. if we're now going to turn that into compost rather than mm-hmm. using it for those floor mats or what, what have you then mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably going to cost more. There's possibly going to be more carbon, uh, a bigger carbon footprint associated with it. And yeah, I, I, I do want to, don't. It's not plain sailing, is it? There's going to no. be a lot of changes. And, and I think for for us, you know, realizing how important peat is, you've got to look at the you know the real world. That you know, it, you know, you look at peat itself. It takes over a hundred years just to form sort of 10 centimetre of, of, of peat, you know, historically. So that's a long time. And if we're finding we, we can recycle and upcycle material, which we can use, which is all the better. But uh, as we, we were chatting earlier, Peter, you know, you know, whiskey, that wonderful product from, from Scotland and everywhere else these days, but mainly obviously Scotland, relies yep. on, on peat for flavour. Yeah, because they, you know, when they're making the malted, you know, they're malting the barley, mm-hmm. they're using the peat as a source of heat to yes. get the, the grains up to the right temperature. And like you say, that imparts the lovely flavour, it's sort of peaty flavour. But mm. I wonder how many tons, thousands of tons of the mm. peat, uh, the whiskey industry uses, and yep. uh, wh- what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, then equally, I suppose the other consideration uh, for the commercial side of horticulture is what's going to happen to 
all the other sources of plants that say for example we're getting a lot of say plants from holland belgium mm -hmm. france yeah are they going to have the peat ban imposed uh, on them in the same time scale or are they possibly going to take a little bit longer to get their sort of uh, get things in in order and then so so the the impact is obviously going to be that well, if our growers have got to buy a more expensive medium to grow the plants in, that's going to be passed on to us. So, yeah, unfortunately, our customers are going our to customers are either yeah. going to have yeah. to buy more expensive plants, mm -hmm. or yeah. some people will no doubt be importing them from Europe mm -hmm. and um, yeah. cutting the cost. And I suppose you know, politically now we're we're in Brexit. You know, do we lay the law down and say actually your plants have got to come in peat free? You really hope so. You did, indeed. So, you know, the whole uh, the whole bowl game really just changed as far as the grower. So these are the questions I'm sure are being asked in the in the horticultural trade at the moment. And I think uh, as far as as gardeners, we, we, we need to know because I think that's going to be important over the next few years in, in what we do with our own plants and, and our own gardens. Definitely. And well, I suppose the positive will be is there'll be a lot more compost heaps hopefully mm. put into action. And um, I know it's a bit of an effort to make your own compost, but... Having done it for sort of quite a number of years, the mm. quality of the product you can produce is actually really good, and if it, mm. it doesn't, it's not that hard. Yes, it's a bit of a chore, sort of turning the compost over a mm -hmm. couple of times a year and leaving it. I mean, it does take. Maybe I'm just a bad compost maker, but, but mine takes a good couple of years to yeah, really yeah. get to all of the wooden uh, twigs and what have you to break down properly. Maybe that's because of what I put into my compost heap. <laughs> they reckon, yeah, six to nine months is, is if you're doing well, if you can do it in that sort of time. So, you know, a couple of years. But think about the cost as well. I mean, obviously in, in Buckinghamshire, you know, to, to have a brown bin costs you money. Yeah, so £40 pounds a year or something, isn't it, yeah, at the yeah. moment? So you're paying somebody to take your compost your, your material weight to make compost whereas you could actually be producing your own so yeah. it's a bit of a no-brainer as they say yeah it's not that hard so a couple of products mm. on the market that also help just thinking about what mm. you're saying about the time time scale garotta mm. um is a that helps to speed it up, doesn't it? And yeah, it's a, what they call a compost activator. So it, it basically, yeah, sort of supercharges your compost to break down that little bit quicker and generates a bit more heat within the, within the compost as well. So it's a bit like dumping your lawn lawn cuttings mm. in the bottom of the compost heap yeah. before yeah. you really get started Indeed. getting a sort of inch of uh, lawn cuttings in there. I was going to say, it's worth mentioning as well, Peter, with lawn cuttings, try and put small layers in when you compost heap. Don't put huge deep layers because that can get a bit uh, well you get a bit smelly slimy it's smelly. always disgusting yeah. isn't it absolutely disgusting so yeah if you can just put a small amount you know have it back um, a lot of people put their um, their, their um, lawn cuttings under hedges and things just to to break down gently and then just add it as an additive to your mix so every it's a good idea yeah. it's a good way of just putting it in and then it will break down nicely but obviously don't go too heavy-handed with that but obviously your other sort of things your, your peelings and your your light trimmings and your making sure obviously the material you put in has not uh, got any disease or pests obviously they need to go perhaps on the incinerator which of course once you've incinerated can go on your compost heap as well good tip good tip i like it chris good so as you know chris some um, children are close to my heart with my two little ones and Indeed. um 
Coming up soon is National Children's Gardening Week. What are we doing there? Yes, so this has um, been organised by the, the Horticultural Trade Association and we're certainly behind it and you'll probably see most of your local garden centres actively involved as well. And basically it's highlighting the activities you can get your children involved in over a week, um, which we're, go- we're going to kickstart with uh, a bit of um, sunflower sowing okay. uh, for a little video we're going to put together, which will be uh, available. But the whole idea is, is to get people, uh, and obviously children, engaged in gardening. So through the course of the, the week, there'll be lots of projects we'll be highlighting. And of course, uh, the Garden Centre has a, a junior gardening club, so we'll be highlighting yep. From there on, in each month, a nice gardening project uh, children can get involved in and we'll be showing some fun things they could be doing as well. Yeah, to, so to give you an update on the bean, Jack Jack's beanstalk, oh, yes. <laughs> unfortunately, oh. he didn't make it. it. Did. Oh. <laughs> so um, we planted some more beans and um, James went out a couple of weeks ago and helped me plant them all. And um, the new new beanstalks are doing well. Good. But yeah, yeah. this, um, I guess you call it a magazine that... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, We've we've got the pepper pigs obviously fronting it, and there's some nice pictures inside to colour in, and like you say, sort of uh, some good projects and uh, an article on bees to help mm-hmm. them understand a little bit about bees and the importance of pollinators, and yeah, then how to build a birdseed feeder using your sort of soy milk box, isn't there? Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was a really simple use and good way of recycling your carton with, uh, and turning it into something useful. So that booklet's actually available now from the beginning of June. Um, limited availability. Um, the uh, the suggested price rate is a pound, which will be going to uh, Save the Children, which is the uh, uh, the charity involved with the, uh, the the National Gardeners Children's Week, as well as Peppa Pig. And I think the, the other sponsor is Regatta as well. So I think it's a really good initiative um, for, for, for getting involved in. And of course, it, it's it's all what it's all about, isn't it? It's, t- it's hands-on little projects people can get involved in and uh, get their little ones uh, doing various things to keep us adults entertained. Yeah, or should, or should right. that be the other way around? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, you yeah. take James down the allotment and <laughs> he, he's, he's quite a challenge. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so moving on, we've also got National Growing for Wellbeing Week, haven't we, Chris? That's right. Now, this is, uh, as we're, we're sort of talking about mental health, and obviously it was Mental Health Awareness and Wellbeing uh, Month back in May, it's interesting that... Um, this this particular charity, which is the uh, Life at Number Twenty Seven, uh, is basically having a special week to celebrate Growing for Wellbeing Week, which is all about the be- helping people's physical and mental health. And uh, the statistic I got from when I was reading their little press report was the fact that approximately one in eight children have diagnosed mental illness at the age of fourteen, and one in four adults in the UK experience mental health issues each year obviously that's been compounded quite a lot with of course the uh, the covid Shut pandemic down, yeah. yeah yeah so it's it's great that they're doing things and of course um, like all the, all these sort of charity uh, events it's uh, obviously pushing and trying to create greater awareness uh, of this particular charity so well worth looking at uh, life at number 27 if you if you google them and you'll find out all about wellbeing week and how to get involved they've got lots of uh, centers across the UK and there'll probably one just down the road and they can give you opportunities to to learn more about gardening to get involved and to obviously benefit and 
use and concentrate on those wonderful communications that gardening gives us as well so something else to, to look forward to on that particular week so two very busy weeks in the world of gardening yes with regards to well-being and mental health obviously we're very very grateful to Chilton Music Therapy for Indeed. for recording the theme tune for us of in an English country garden and joining us on the show today is Catherine Watkins from Chilton Music Therapy good afternoon Catherine Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me join you. Yes, and it's great great to hear you. And of course, uh, as, as people will hear on the beginning of the podcast, and of course at our end credits, of course, uh, Chiltern Music Therapy provided the, the wonderful theme tune to our podcast. So uh, it's nice to be able to, event, you know, to actually chatting to the people behind the music. And uh, I suppose, I suppose we, we first need to kick off really to find out a little bit more about Chiltern Music Therapy. Uh, what do you actually do? Yeah, so really happy to, to be able to talk to you about our organisation today. So we are an award-winning not-for-profit organisation that provides music therapy and community music um, to people across England. So we were formed in 2011 and are based in Buckinghamshire, formed by Rosie Axon um, because there was such a need in her local community for the kind of um Chilton is a real success story in that it's it's now grown to um, have over 40 community mus- musicians and music therapists and we're out there striving for a world where kind of music and music therapy can be sort of transformative thread in everyday life for people. Right, Catherine. Could I just ask what basically is music therapy? Um, could you sort of go, go through the, sort of the process of this? Because obviously we hear about all various times of, of therapy in connection with uh, mental health, but perhaps you could just enlighten us a little bit more about the, the sort of the processes? Yeah, well, music therapy is quite a, a, a profession that people don't necessarily understand. So we are kind of clinical professionals, I suppose, and, and our job is to use have a very kind of clinical approach and evidence-based approach using the science of music to support people of all ages with a full range of disabilities in in lots of areas. So one of those areas is emotion and mental health. The other areas we might work in is around people's communication skills, around their kind of thinking and processing skills, and even around some kind of physical skills, helping people with their with their movement using music. So there, so that's what what music therapy is. And I guess if people might understand if they have an awareness that we can work with, you know, newborn children all the way through to adults with severe dementia in a care home and everything in between. So depending on the clients that we're working with will very much depend on the type of approach that we have with people. But we normally see our clients every week for a music therapy session. And in that there will, there will be kind of active music making, some talking and very much participatory, involved approach. So, so it's definitely not people just sitting listening. Music therapy is all about engaging people and using music as our tool to support people achieve the goals that they want to, to achieve. That's really interesting because um, I can remember when I was at school, I was part of the choir, and mm-hmm. I know I always felt when you've got a big group of you singing along to a, a song, the feeling inside your body is is quite remarkable. It it definitely does something to you. Now, can you explain that to me a little bit more? I mean, how does it support your well-being? Yeah, I mean, music is incredibly 
powerful tool. <laughs> it's inc incredibly powerful and it's very present in everyday life without us sometimes even realising it. Music can both convey and contain our emotions. And like you say, it can alter and impact how you feel. It's also quite an integral part of a lot of things that we do, societal things that we do. So it's part of kind of rituals about, you know, life and death and birth and weddings and funerals and all of these kind of things. So music is, is very um, present in all of our lives without even realising it. So in terms of music supporting well-being, I was going to kind of list maybe maybe three ways that people could, could think about using music to support their well-being. One might be very simple, just listening. So if you're, if you're feeling anxious or worried or unsettled, then finding a piece of music that you can just sit down, close your eyes and listen to, maybe attune your breathing to the speed of the music, just kind of use the music to help you settle it will be very very relaxing and calming and can help regulate your breathing and how you're feeling the, the other way like you say something in a choir is very active music making so active music making kind of releases loads of neurochemicals and things in our bodies that you know that's that, that um about kind of pleasure and reward and helping us feel invigorated so it might be that um, that's for someone that might be singing in the shower or in the car or as you're walking along, being aware of the, the sound of your footsteps as you walk. Um, so all of that is actually kind of using sound music to to kind of maybe boost your boost your energy, boost your emotions and how you're feeling. And then the third thing I was just going to say was about kind of getting creative. Music is a very creative thing. So even if you're not musical getting creative around kind of sound, maybe in the garden or in your home, can be a distraction, but can also help you process or express feelings and things that are going on for you. So we all know that, you know, hitting a drum really hard will help release, you know, some of those kind of pressures and emotions that might be building up inside of us. Mm, definitely. My son's very good at hitting his drums. He loves <laughs> making a good noise. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Catherine, with the, with the pandemic and last year's lockdown, certainly, obviously, people were finding a lot of solace in the garden, but I was finding solace in music as well. I was listening to a lot more music, either on my, my headphones or around the house, just to try and move away from the, the, you know, the routine and the quietness of life. Um, and I'm sure that perhaps is one of the, the good pointers, uh, if anything comes out of, of COVID, that we can actually learn from using the sort of uh, therapy sort of sessions in our own lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, a music therapy session involves having a, you know, a trained clinician working, working with someone and maybe doing some songwriting to help process how they're feeling and that sort of, that sort of thing. Yeah, music in everyday life is really, really important. And there are loads of ways we can we can just do it ourselves, like you say, just simple music listening, and the impact that can have on us. You know, something like creating a playlist for particularly for people who might be suffering with anxiety. If you can create a playlist that that's got songs in there that you know kind of help you feel calm or grounded, then that might be a really important tool that you can just do yourself. Okay. And Catherine, could you perhaps give an example of some of the, the work you've, you've been involved in, maybe, just to uh, give us a, an insight? Yeah, I would, I would be really happy to. I think the, the narratives and people's stories are really important about the work that we do. I guess I was thinking maybe of, of 
there's a lady I work with who's who had a stroke and both her, her language and her movement was, was really severely impacted by her stroke. And we've done lots of work together using the power of music to help her regain her speech. In particular, one of the things we've been trying to do is help her be able to say her grandchildren's names. Um, right, so okay. we're using music to help her do that. Um, okay. And also things about movement. So thinking about how we can help um, her with her walking. So if you imagine walking to the beat of music, um, that kind of attunement or walking to a steady pace can really help someone improve the, the way that they walk and the way that they walk and their mobility. Um, mm -hmm. so, th so those are kind of quite functional, practical things, as well as then talking to her and supporting her around um, her mental health and, and the, the huge change that having a stroke has had on her life. So I think that's, that's just an example of many different ways, just even with one client, one person that we're working with, that we can, we can bring music in and help not just engage, do really kind of active participation that helps improve someone's life. That's great. That's very inspiring. Yeah, thank you. And if our listeners would like to help support you guys, how can we get in touch or what can we do? Yeah, well, I think that it would be, it would be great to have, to have support from, from your listeners. And there are kind of two key things I would say. The first one is spreading the word. Spread the word about the power of music. Spread the word about Chilton and who we are. And one of our aims at the minute is to really light up kind of a network of champions who understand a little bit about music therapy, can tell people about how music can be powerful in people's lives. So just using, using yourself and your own knowledge to spread the word is one thing. The other thing, I guess, is um, in terms of visiting our website, which is www.chilternmusictherapy.co.uk. And on there, we do have a donate button. And that donate button takes you to a webpage where you're able to contribute to our bursary fund. So that helps okay. people who are unable to pay themselves and be able to still access music therapy because we're able to provide music therapy by using the funds from there. So those are the those are the two ways I would say to to um to support us. But if people want to get in contact and have ideas about how we can get out there in terms of publicity or in terms of raising funds for us, then then that would be fantastic. Excellent. Thank you so much for those points, Catherine. It's been really interesting talking to you today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Catherine. That's all right. Thank you for having me. We've got a bit of a musical theme going on, Peter, I think, from uh, from the English Country Garden. Let's take a, a trip to Amsterdam and look at those tulips, which tulips are coming to the end of their display, sadly, though. Mm, summer is nearly here, we hope. We hope, <laughs> yes. Although you wouldn't have thought it today. But, uh, yeah, so really, yeah, tulips, it's always a bit debatable whether you leave your tulips in or you lift them. And if you've got space in your garden to store, you plant them out elsewhere. Um, I was watching good old Monty Don the other the other night on TV, and he tends to put his tulips in his one of his uh, meadows. Okay, gets rid of them that way. And uh, actually, last year that's exactly what I did in my garden, and I've got some really nice pink and red tulips appearing around my uh, cow parsley and uh, my borage. So it can be done, and it's a good way of letting the the, the tulip bulbs sort of have a bit of a rest in the source. And of course, then that means your containers are nice and free to do other things through the summer. 
Okay, so that so taking the container, picking the bulb, moving it, or taking the container yeah. and just yes, um, I mean if they're in a replanting it. Yeah, if they're in a container, take everything there, the compost and everything, and, and just yeah, dig a nice big hole and just drop the whole display in. Effectively, I yep. mean you're improving your soil. And of course, you're going to be put using new compost anyway for for your container this this year. And then if you if you're feeling very uh, f- uh, if, you, if you want to do a little bit of feeding at this time of the year, then of course you can get some uh, high potassium feed, a bit of your tomato yep. feed, and give them a feed as well just to make sure those bulbs ripen up nicely as they die back. And that'll ensure you get a really good display come uh, next spring. So that's similar to what we were talking about last month with mm. our daffodils, isn't exactly, it? We're yeah. putting the, the fertilizer on to really boost mm. them up. Yeah, I see. You no, know, we we've cut our daffodils mm. down out the front now, yeah. so hopefully mm. they had enough time to yeah. six weeks. Get some more yeah. energy. Yeah, yeah. And, um... yeah tulips. Are you always tend to find with tulips they tend to die back a lot quicker because. The weather conditions normally are a lot more warmer and sunnier, and the plant just wants to start to uh, to regress for, uh, for for the for the summer period. But it's uh, it's interesting. A lot of the tulip varieties we get now are only really, I always feel only once bloomers. You know, you get a nice show. So if you can move them and give them a second chance, so much the better. Those days of actually digging up all your your tulips and replanting them are probably long gone for a lot of people because we just haven't got the space in our in our gardens these days. Yeah. Is that a packet of seeds I hear you shaking? It is, yeah, good, good, a good observation. And it is seed sowing time for some flowers for next spring. So timely advice, um, basically into June now, you can sow a lot of your um, basically biennial plants. So these, okay. are, so these are plants you sow now to produce flowers for next year. So the usual things are sweet william, wallflower, and the ones I've got in my hand here are canterbury bells, um, primroses, polyanthus, um, sweet Williams, as I say, and of course uh, pansies and violas as well. But things like Canterbury bells are, are a real favourite of mine, and they they do grow very very well. If you if you sow them at this time of year, you get some nice little plants for for planting out come October time. Um, so if you've got a bit of space, yeah. they'll, they'll give you plenty of colour for next year, and it won't have only cost you the, the cost of a packet of seed, which in the case of uh, this Johnson's packet, two pounds forty. Well, that's not even uh, you know, a tray of six pack bedding is probably 399 and you're going to get certainly more than six out of a, a packet of seeds so well certainly that's what i learned when i first started gardening it was always by plug plants or buy them in sort of little mm-hmm. penine pots and um you can easily spend 40 50 pounds yes. <laughs> just on your vegetables Most definitely. whereas now mm-hmm. i've really got into sowing my, my seeds and yeah you save a fortune and um me being the skin flint i am i, I generally only <laughs> plant a third of a packet of yeah. like broad beans or something and they'll i know they say sort of so within a couple of years but mine seem to grow good four or five years after they've gone out of date. <laughs> yeah, you should. As long as you keep them in a nice uh, airtight container, that's actually fine away from uh, potential moisture, you should be fine. But all these these flowers I mentioned are going to give you lots of colour next year, and that's really a bit of forward planning for, for, for the month of June. Good tip, Chris. Thanks a lot. And containers. Mm. I mean, I, I did my hanging baskets a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and, uh, right. really? St- yes, Gosh. really. <laughs> I've not done mine yet. Oh, you're you beating me, me too, here. Chris. Yes. That's the <laughs> first. <laughs> um, but yeah, just thinking it's about time to be planting uh, your hanging baskets up now, isn't it? It is, yeah. And um, it's interesting that uh, there's some, some principles which you can use for containers. And we, we've actually done some new publicity and point of sale around the garden centre just this last last week or so and we put them under the the thriller uh, filler and spiller motto 
Right. <laughs> and basically, this is going back for, for many years, and many of our listeners will know this, but basically you can use um, particular plants to, or you can categorise particular plants in certain ways. So your, your thriller plants tend to be your centre plants in your containers. So you Yep. The geraniums and the fuchsias and the big, the big sort of yeah the big the big stuff the, the yeah the, the real punchy wow plants you might put things like cannas in maybe a nice dahlia something yep. with a real uh, standard fuchsia perhaps something really wowish to uh, give you the height I mean it's really to give you the height and if you've got a container where you're wanting a foliage theme you might use something like a cordyline or even a yucca to, yep. to achieve that and then your um, your filler plants are the plants which go. But at the base of your your uh, your centre plants, if you like, and there tends to be things like petunias, your marigolds, your begonias, and they just fill out and, and cushion the, the base of the plants. And of course, the spillers, as the name suggests, spill yeah, out. Well, uh, yes, yeah, spill yeah. over the, the edge, edge, are they? There, yeah. So the lobelias and the, the trailing plant. That's it. Yep. So oh. you've got like your uh, your trailing fuchsias and your pelargoniums, and of course, you've got things like your uh, nepeta, some of the very popular variegated and uh, green and yellow leaf plants like uh, helichrysum creeping jenny creeping jenny is a really good plant for, yep lovely yellow flowers uh, yep. sorry not yellow yellow yep. leaves and, and yellow flowers and yes. yellow flowers i don't yeah. think i've seen it flowering yeah, yeah no. most people grow it for its foliage but when it flowers it looks absolutely spectacular and of course that's completely hardy so if you wanted to do a container later on in the, in the year then of course uh, creeping jenny both the green and the yellow leafed ones are, are really good for that and of course there's lots of other varieties out there bacupa um and of course yeah it, there's, it's an exciting part of, of, of gardening is container gardening definitely and you know, just thinking a bit more about the containers and we got a guest coming up um mm. our listeners might be interested in hearing what he has to say Indeed, yes. Uh, our next podcast is uh, going to be featuring Stuart Lowen from Borkhold Graves. And uh, yeah, we're really excited to, to hear what he has to say. They are basically the, the, the guiding light of, of the bedding plant industry. So I'm sure we'll learn an awful lot about the new varieties and a few of the, 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 story, the backstories to a lot of the bedding plants we grow in our gardens today. Sounds interesting. Should Looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. So with the weather hopefully warming up soon, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I guess uh, problems in the garden is what we should be thinking about, the aphids and the mm-hmm. mildews and things like that. What have, uh, have you got any new products to recommend for us this month, Chris? Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's one certainly which has caught my eye, only because I'm a real keen fan of, of seaweed uh, in all its forms. In the okay, so maxi crop. I seem to remember having been mentioned a few times. I mean, yeah. that's great for getting plants to bud out. I never knew you could that's right. get your yew tree to grow new shoots out of the side of its um, bark. Yep. Just by spraying it with maxi crop. It's a very good growth stimulant. And it's basically, seaweed. Yeah, seaweed, of course. Yeah, seaweed in the form of a spray, though, has come from a company called Vitax, which obviously is popular with our gardeners. And okay, because that's the Q4. They make the Q4 they I do. use on my potatoes. Indeed, yes. Good yeah. company. Very right. good company. And uh, very inventive and uh, obviously forward thinking. So they brought this product called Plant Guard. And basically, it's um, when you spray it, it produces a residue barrier which basically stops the spores of a lot of um, diseases from germinating some sporiating okay and also it removes a lot of the, the nasty pests your aphids your green fly um your black fly white fly from the leaves as well and it does it 
quite it does it in a very clever physical way rather than actually going into the plant and causing all sorts of um, nasty things to the, the plant cells so it's a very okay. safe and it's very it's organically approved so brilliant another organic product yeah, yeah. so it's good for the bees and the bird exactly yeah so for, for a lot of volunteers perfect and of course it has that added advantage as we mentioned with seaweed it will stimulate growth as well so a three-pronged attack so i'm going to give it a trial this year and see how it how it fares in my garden and i'm sure um, hopefully it'll, it'll get some good interest out in the in the big wild world of, of retail brilliant and you know, just thinking about the bees and the birds another product that historically we've sold for quite a long while here is some um, grazers isn't it mm. that, that, that's good for well, I, I've used it to stop the pigeons eating my broccoli and um, sprouts. So yes, uh, and and uh, yeah, we often recommend it for when you've got issues with uh, sort of muntjac deer and other um, sort of pesky, bigger uh, problems. Yeah, so it, it's for larger animals <laughs> yeah, rather than the aphids and the bugs and That's a good one to use. And it? you're just basically spraying it around, obviously on the plants and around the area to deter it. It's all about scent, isn't it? And, and yep. smell. It's a very clever and very simple way. Obviously, the only downside is you've got to keep reapplying it. But then, hey, if it's if it's nice and safe to the environment, that's a, a small price to pay. Definitely. Yeah. So I planted my potatoes up a while ago now, Chris. Mm-hmm. And um, what other vegetables should be thinking about planting at the moment? Right. A lot of people have held back on their tender vegetables because the weather during May was so tricky. And yep. uh, I think a lot of people will be probably planting out things like their, uh, their courgettes, their marrows, the squashes uh, anytime soon. So early June is always the, a good time. The soil will have warmed up a little bit, hopefully. It's had plenty of moisture anyway it's to start 10 with. degrees, isn't it, that you're meant to wait for, for the sort of nighttime temperature, ideally, for the That's likes it. of squashes, courgettes, and yeah. Um, yeah. obviously runner beans as runner well, beans. if you're yeah. <laughs> as me. Yeah, and if you're going to be putting out your, your peppers and your tomatoes, um, you, you have to give them, and obviously if you've got these in greenhouses or in the house on a windowsill, remember to hard them off, acclimatise yep. them over probably four or five nights, uh, put them outside during the day, and then obviously uh, bring them in at night if the temperature getting quite chilly i mean eight ninety degrees at night is fine for a lot of vegetable plants the tender ones but obviously if it drops below four or five degrees then they could get a bit of a shock and the wind is also a big problem as well isn't it for the sort mm. of tender plants it, yeah. if it's going to be say six isn't it six degrees yeah. and windy yeah you're better to sort of give them a bit more shelter and yeah. um but equally you know, these days with the likes of the sort of protective fleece that we've got mm-hmm. you yeah. can Give them a bit more of a gentle start and get them going yeah. well. I tend to put, um, I, I use a product called EnviroMesh uh, a lot in my garden. Okay. And uh, that is really good. It slows the wind speed down and it acts almost like a, a mini sort of uh, propagator because it has, obviously, it's, it's a polyester based material. So it's got a, a bit of warmth, but it does sort of breathe, which is yep. quite important with, uh, with with your plants as you're putting them in. So you could use that as what they call a floating cloche. So if you want to, you know, protect and put that over your, um, your, your lettuce or your, um, even your strawberries, yep. that will obviously help to protect and give a bit more warmth to the soil too. Uh, talking about strawberries, um, my, fa- my, my fa- own, yeah. our favourite, <laughs> yeah, vegetable. most definitely. And uh, yeah, they're flowering now. They've got flowers on, and yep. um, yeah. So obviously, in a few weeks' time, the the fruits are going to start forming. So make sure you put some necessary guard against obviously uh, the pigeons and the uh, and the slugs, the, the slugs as well. Yes. So they can get them, make sure the copper tapes all around. Indeed. And, um, yep. Yeah. Protect them from above as well, because uh, just thinking about your environment, Chris, um, my neighbour on my allotment. I think she 
might have bought a house with, uh, from an old person because she covers her allotment in net curtains. Indeed. And oh. uh, it's just a lovely <laughs> sight to see sort of uh, these old net curtains being reused. But they, <laughs> they, I guess they're nylon as well and they come out every year and but they but, protect all her plants from predators from above. Indeed, yeah, perfect. Is there anything else we should be thinking about planting at the moment then, Chris? Yeah, I've got some more seeds, Peter. Yeah, <laughs> Rattling them away. Um, yeah, so continuity is the key word, isn't it? And succession in the vegetable garden. So as soon yeah. as you've got a bit of space available, fill it with something. That's the key. And obviously your salad crops, so your lettuce, uh, your spring onions, your radish should be sown obviously on a regular basis. Small quantities obviously every every couple of weeks and then maybe have a look at your your, your brassicas now we're into um well we're into obviously a lot of the savoy cabbage time and of course right. brussels sprouts yes for because they don't they don't crop for a good few months yes and yes. i can always remember my grandfather wouldn't pick his Brussels until they had a good hard frost. He, he liked a good strong Brussels sprout. <laughs> oh, thank goodness they they've bred sweetness into that vegetable. Otherwise, I, I, I'm not the I'm not its number one fan to say the least. But they have improved them over the years. Massively. I, have to say. I mean, the, the, yeah. the Brussels of today are mm. they're, they're so nice and yes. yummy. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I, I love roast Brussels sprouts uh, rather than just a boiled one. Oh wow! Yes, if you roast them with some. Um, chestnuts or mm-hmm. some nuts and yeah. they can be really yeah. nice yeah F- yeah fr- fried off with a little bit of uh, bacon as well goes that's a bit naughty a real though. treat isn't it it is but uh, yeah so yeah timely yeah so get yourself some plants i mean it's probably getting a bit late to sow brussels sprout seeds but soon you'll be able to get plug plants at this time of the year things like calibrace as well not too late for your leeks if you can yeah you need to be okay. quick off the mark and the less. sproutings you presumably don't i mean they're another long long-term plant aren't they, they are. the, yeah. the purple sprouting Indeed. and the white sprouting because yeah. you don't you, you sow them this year and then you'll be eating them next, next year. year yeah it's sort of january february march so for again for continuity of your winter crops they're ideal so make sure you you get some space and get get some plants in in in, in preparation for that sort of season Excellent, and I don't. Well, I'm not sure anyone in England at the moment needs to be thinking about watering with the amount no. of water we've had, <laughs> unless it's maybe a container. Yes, um, yeah. But, yeah, certainly. Uh, other things I suppose we should be thinking about is maybe starting to feed. Yep, start the feeding program on your your containers, and uh, especially if you've already got your hanging baskets planted. Six weeks, remember the six week rule yep. when, when the nutrients start to fail. So that's when you need to start to top up. And of course, um, yeah, in view of the amount of yeah rain we've had over the last few weeks, might be worth redressing your your general sprinkling of some general fertilizer, a bit of Vitax Q4 or blood fish and bone, just to give things a boost. Especially if they're looking a little bit, still looking a little bit sad after the the really ferocious April and early May weather we, we had those cold night frosts have taken a lot of uh, a lot of plants hostage so yeah give them a new uh, new lease of life by a bit more well, feed. Well certainly I, I noticed on my run of beans that this year the even though I planted them in a decent compost mm-hmm. and treated them the same as I, as I always have done the leaves are slightly yellower mm. they're, they're certainly not their normal robust sort of green dark green colour they're a much lighter yellower and yeah. my mother is saying that that is due to this yeah. sort of poor growing conditions yeah. and it's amazing what a difference it makes isn't it it does yeah and we, yeah i can't remember a year like this it's, it's it's unprecedented to be honest with you so yes just give your plants a little bit of a, a bit extra tlc and they will they will respond the other thing as well of 
course, in the greenhouses, your tomatoes, mine are, are doing okay, but they're certainly a lot behind to the, what they were last year. And, uh, of course, again, they will need that, that bit of feed and extra feed. And also uh, pollination of tomatoes. Mm. So it's the tapping of the plants, basically. So when you go along into your greenhouse, or if you've got them, if, when you start to put them outside, obviously through this, this month, um, basically just go along and just tap the top of the cane to right. shake the whole plant, give it a okay. little shake. Um, that's just to help to distribute and to move the pollen around within the flower, to help pollen set within your tomato fruits. Because they're a self-pollinating they are. plant, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So that would make sense, give yeah. them a good yeah. bit, bit yeah. of a yeah. shuggle about, and yeah. all the pollen drops off yeah. into the stamens. And traditionally, the old gardeners in the you know in the bothy days of, of, of you know the Victorian gardeners would go along and they do that. They'd have a a cane and a bobbin reel attached to the cane, and they'd go along and tap the pots because, of course, they used to use terracotta clay pots. And if yeah. they rung particularly high, then the plant obviously needed a water. And okay. As, and as they were doing that, they then go along with their uh, their cane and hit the top of the the string or the um, the cane support to pollinate the plant. So they'd use their <laughs> their little tool um, to ensure that the plants got you know both a check a water check and a bit of extra pollination. That's a good tip. Really <laughs> nice one. Shame we don't use terracotta pots in that way these days. Of course, never mind. <laughs> Thing I've learned is that you're far better to go down and hoe the mm. allotment regularly and try and get yeah. down there sort of once a week and spend half an hour on it rather than leaving it a couple yeah. of weeks and then oh gosh you've yes. got yeah, yeah. a lot more work to do haven't yeah you? i mean i've been taking out quite a lot of perennial buttercups buttercups which i do tend to leave in some parts of the garden for the bees and for the for the pollinators however in my borders i do want to remove them and of course because of the amount of rain we've had actually that type of weeding where you've got to remove a perennial weed has been a lot easier this year to to other years so you know there's a, there's a, there is an advantage to a bit of rain in, in May and June. And now moving on, new section for our podcast this week, Chris. Mm. Um, listeners' questions. I and know. We, we've had an email in from Sally Prime. Hi, Sally. Thank you very much for your question. And today's question is, do you have a recommendation for a hedge to plant around the edge of my veg garden? Yep, and... Um Basically, Sally did mention that it's uh, it's a north edge and it's quite quite a low wall and the soil's quite alkaline, so we did have a bit of think about it. And certainly at the garden centre here and through our um, our mail order catalogue, we do tend to promote the idea of a edible hedge line, right? Which would work on so many levels. It's tough, it's resilient, mainly contains native species in the main. But it's also going to be productive. So um, yeah, that, that was an idea I, I popped back to to, uh, to Sally as a as a possible. And what sort of plants has the edible hedge got in it, Chris? Right. So it includes amelanchia, which a lot of people will be familiar with as a as a as a hedging plant or as a tree, a small garden tree, a fantastic tree. Things like Rosa rugosa, the Cornelian cherry. Uh, you've got the, um, the the hazel, myrobium plum, obviously sloes. We couldn't do without. Oh, uh, that's a new pronounce. Okay, Chris. Sorry, I must interrupt you here. Yeah, I always knew it as a myroballum. Yeah, well, I'm, but I'm, you're I'm, a myroballum. Ballum. Yes. Okay. It's pronunciation. I'm probably no, no. I think I think you're. Yeah, it's it's just the way you say these plants, isn't it? It's cyclamen or cyclamen. So a nice edible plum. Yes, indeed. And to finish off, some quick thorn. Okay. So because you get the trying to think what you eat off the the. Quickthorn, it's the 
bud, no, the the little berries, isn't it's it? Berries, yeah, little little little, uh, yeah, effectively they're little little, little yeah, whores, aren't they? As as the name whores, suggests, whores, yes, yes, yeah, whores, yeah. And of course, those are all really good. Obviously, they're great for wildlife as well. So if you don't actually use them for the kitchen, your wildlife and your birds around your vegetable plot are going to benefit. And probably it's better to be feeding them that way than perhaps on your cabbages or your uh, your other uh, crops as well. So I mean, okay. you might be encouraging them, perhaps. I don't know, but uh, that was one suggestion. And then the other suggestion was actually if you've got a vegetable plot, you tend to use lots of canes and sticks and such like. Yes, so, I'm always using lots. Of I know, canes. and they're quite expensive over the years. So I, I suggested them maybe go for a, a nice hazel hedge line. So it's just That's straight. A good idea. So just ordinary Coralus avalina the normal green standard um, hazel which of course you can coppice back so you can keep it within reach and within restraints and of course it, uh, it's great great for the wildlife as well yep. obviously you get a few uh, hazelnuts potentially after a few years and uh, yeah it looks really nice too and Sally if you're feeling really flush another option here would be to use a, a something like a Pearson's prolific or maybe if you wanted a bit mm. of color something like a um, purple leaf filbert indeed and uh, that would then give you a really good crop of hazelnuts mm. as well and as well as Chris's idea of using the, getting the canes from well. them yes yeah actually I'm going to say yeah, the, the use of um, the, the commercial varieties of hazelnuts is very popular and I think yeah I think we tend to stock around about three varieties a year so you could and that helps with the pollination as well so you could be pretty well self-sufficient in hazelnuts and if, you, if you're clever and interplant with a normal hazel you'd have lots of uh, sticks as well to go with so a real good combination of plants okay there. so the the likes of the pearson's prolific that's mm. not so good for coppicing you'd want a normal sort of standard hazel for that would you? i think for production i think you you'll find that the purple is not quite as productive for your uh, your hazel sticks uh right. than the normal ones uh, only because i think it's maybe because of the leaves we always say about purple leaf plants they're not quite as vigorous i tend not to agree especially with beech because our, our beech hedges at the garden center here are, are equally as um uh, efficient and vigorous now they're established but early on in the, the the life of the plant they can be a little bit slow to get going but once they're established and of course on the vegetable garden they're going to get established well because they're going to get lots of tlc because you're going to be looking after them and and uh, tending them with your, your vegetables you should get some really really good results so a few ideas there for uh, for sally and hope uh, she, she can utilize those and obviously reports back with her successes or otherwise Brilliant. Well, thanks for that question, Sally. I hope that's answered or given you some ideas as to what sort of hedge you can plant around your vegetable mm. garden now. And moving on to our next podcast, obviously we've got Stuart from Bulk Holgrave to talk to us a bit about bedding plants mm. and we'll be hopefully giving you some ideas about uh, the bedding suggestions and what to look out for in the garden centres. Yeah, looking forward to that, Peter. I yeah. think that's going to be a really good one. So hopefully the weather will warm up soon, Chris, and <laughs> we'll get uh, to enjoy a bit more of our gardens. I'm hoping so, Peter. Definitely. The barbecue as a, a, as a uh, warming air, uh, instrument, I think, is probably going to be more <laughs> apt than cooking food at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to some nice sunny days ahead. Excellent. Well, thanks for today's show, Chris. Pleasure. And thanks to Catherine for telling us a little bit more about Chiltern Music Therapy and providing the music for our show. Today's podcast was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Peter Brown and Chris Day. The show was produced by Peter Brown. Thanks for listening. At Chiltern Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. 
We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.